Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cine fans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story, then you can become an 8mm Cine fan where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to CineLit, your audio tour around the wonderful world of cinema. I'm your host, Adam Marsh. I'm joined by CineLit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. Welcome, Daryl. How are you? Hello, Adam. I'm fine, thanks. Good. So today we're going to be looking at the directorial career of Rob Reiner. Now, we've been knocking out episodes of this podcast for over a year now, and we've covered a whole range of subjects, actors, directors, genres. So eagle-eared listeners should be used to how we do these things and potentially get a heads up on future topics. So we did an excellent episode on uh, Kathleen Turner, which uh, is out there in the world to listen to, uh, which because of that, we were discussing The Man With Two Brains, which begat our episode on Steve Martin and Carl Reiner, which has now in turn begat our episode today on Rob Reiner. What will the future of Simulate hold after today's discussion? Uh, as I was researching Reiner's career, it made me realise that he's directed a number of, of, of my favourite films. Uh, but when I think of, or more accurately, when I'm asked who my favourite directors are, I never think of Rob Reiner. And I don't know whether that's a bad thing or a good thing. Um, I think he's a director that's very adaptable to subject material. And he certainly had a stellar 10 years at the start of his directing career, bringing A-list material and, and making it A-plus, I guess. So what do you think, Daryl, of his, of his qualities as a director? Yeah, he's the, um, he's the American Alan Parker, I think. Alan Parker said early in his career um, that he was going to set out with a career plan. He, his aim was to make films in as many different styles and genres as he can. And within, within four or five years of Parker's career, he'd done Bugsy Malone, he'd done Midnight Express, he'd done Pink Floyd the Wall, he'd done Fame, you know. So he, he was true to his word and he stayed like that all through his career. And if you look at Reiner's films, there are links, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing some of the links between individual films and between little pockets of films in his career. But... He's not what you'd call an auteur, I don't think. He's, uh, he's, he's a filmmaker like Alan Parker, who seems to be able to turn his hands to anything. And in that respect, I think he's very different and very distinct from his illustrious dad. Yeah, I mean, you look at those, those, first, you look at those first eight films or so, uh, Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, 
uh, see, a mockumentary comedy, rockumentary, uh, sex comedy, Stand By Me coming of age drama, Princess Bride fantasy comedy, When Harry Met Sally, romantic comedy, misery. Yeah, well- Psychological thriller, yeah, yeah, a few yeah. good men, courtroom drama. You know, you, you, he's literally hitting almost as many genres as he can possibly get his hands on um, in a short period of time. Um, uh, it, it was a run that ended with a horrible, horrible movie called North in 1994 <laughs> with Bruce Willis, which is just an awful, awful movie. Um, but he, ha- I don't, I don't know whether there's many other directors in the 80s that had a run. As, as, as solid as, as Rob Reiner. Yeah, and the point there is, Adam, that the audiences went with Reiner on that journey, and so did critics, up, and, up until North, which I suppose was always going to be a wall that was going to happen, you know, uh, with a filmmaker like this. Um, if you are a sort of audience favourite and critical darling, whether they know it or not, you know, audiences might not have recognised that the guy who made Spinal Tap had also made Stand By Me and so on. You know, his films were always very well reviewed up, up until hitting that inevitable point where suddenly they weren't. Well, he did bounce back with with your favourite Rob Reiner movie, The American President from 1995. Yeah. Uh, should, we, should we get into that? So The American President. Is your favourite Rob Reiner movie in a, in a in a in a career that included Spinal Tap, Princess Bride? You know, there's this this Stand by Me. You know, there's great films there, but the American President is the one. I'm surprised by that myself. Yeah, when when you when you look through Reiner's credits and you see the films that he's made, I'm actually quite surprised that American President is my favourite. But I love it. It's 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 conventional, sure. It's it's cliched, sure, but. Um, what it does, it's one of those movies that takes all that and does it right. And I, I think it stands up there with the, 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 the great films of the 1940s. There's a, there's a scene in the film where um, Annette Benning's character goes on her first sort of official invite to the White House and there's a presidential aide with her and they get stopped at the gate and Benning's character says, oh, I'm looking forward to this, looking forward to experiencing the the Capra-esque atmosphere of, of, of being here, you know. Um, she says that to the guard as they're going in and the aide says, oh, he won't know what Capra-esque means. And of course, the guard then reels off a string of Frank Capra film titles. Now, not only is that a great scene, but it's a Capra-esque scene. Yeah. It's so sort of referential in that way. And I think, you know, you think about the the, 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 the comedies and the sort of social comedies that people like Capra, Howard Hawks, Preston Sturgis were doing in the 40s. This film, I am going on the line and saying, is a notch below those. It's almost, it almost reaches the level of those 40s classics. And I can't believe that a film in the mid-90s got anywhere near that. I, I, I just love it. It's a great star vehicle for me. Yeah, I mean, the one, my, my, literally, my, my first notes after watching it again last night was it, it, it definitely feels that old-school star vehicle. You could imagine Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn being in the leads in this kind of a movie. Obviously, a single president would never have flown in 1940. Sure. But, you know, it barely flew in 1990. <laughs> they're, they're spending about a good 10 minutes of the plot in the first 30 minutes explaining why. Oh, no, he's not single. His wife died tragically. 
it's fine. He's not a single man in the president. We can't have a single man with his finger on the button. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's not going to happen. Um, even now, I don't think you get away with that. You'd have to, and it manages it. It manages to get the explanation why he's single and why it's not a thing. But, but then play into it as well. Yeah, and there's there's a potential pitfall straight away, isn't there? You know, there, there, I think I think what this film does and why it's so 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 great is it rides so many um, waves that, that could send it com- coming crashing down. You know, there's a lot all the way through it that could go wrong and none of it does. It's, it's perfect. It's funny, my, my relationship with this movie is, is, is kind of an unusual one. And when I watched it, in, when I first watched it in like, when it came out in 95, I was like 19 years old. So it's not for me, this movie. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's billed as a rom-com, it, it's set in the present. I'm like, oh, this sounds bloody awful. I'm not, I, yeah, I watched it, I'm like, yeah, not for me, not for me. And I rewatched it a, a years later. And again, I, then I started to dislike it for what it wasn't. You know, it wasn't the yeah. West Wing. It wasn't that insightful, hard-hitting drama set in in the office of the president. You know, it wasn't that. It was a bit of that, and it was a bit of it, you know, but not enough for me to go, yeah, I love it. And now I'm kind of like in the middle with it. I kind of appreciate it for what it is, that old-school Hollywood chemistry and, and the unusual setting of, of, of the office of the president. And again, just some of the great performances and, the wonderful depth of supporting roles in this movie. Absolutely. You've got some great, great actors in very minor roles in this, which is, sure. you know, like, you know, like Richard Dreyfus, brilliant, brilliant uh, Republican candidate. He, he's fantastic. He's barely in it, really. He's in it enough yeah, yeah. to really stand out. But even just like Samantha Mathis, uh, you know, Martin Sheen, obviously auditioning for the West Wing in yeah, many yeah. ways in this. Um, just a great, a great raft of uh, of good supporting actors in this. He's really padded out the cast well. Yeah, as as you say, Dreyfus in particular, I think only only gets a few minutes of screen time, and he sort of pops in and out of the movie, but makes such an impact that his presence sort of lies across the whole thing you know and he's 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 the uh, the big republican rival you know and it's a it's a film that that dares to actually delineate its characters as republican and democrat it doesn't sort of mess about there you know you've got clear lines drawn um whereas with a lot of films like this you know and a lot of films that have fictional presidents in they they don't want to alienate ticket buyers, you know, and they don't want to sort of draw a line and say, oh, yeah, this this guy being played by whichever actor it may be, George Clooney or whoever, you know, is a Democrat or is a sort of left leaning politician or whatever. There's they all seem to sort of walk along a bit of a tightrope so as not to alienate to the the half of the audience, you know, and 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 this film actually does that by dividing up the characters and saying no we're we're going to pitch our guy into a battle you know he's 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 on the verge of an election campaign and um and we're going to show him in one light and we're going to show the other candidate in another and uh, I, I think it's great that the film dares to do that and again it, that's something that a 1940s film would have done i think and that had gone out of fashion in 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 the years in between I think one of the other th- reasons I was uh, I, I was down on it when it first came out was like, I was a huge Michael J. Fox fan when I was like uh, you know to my growing up you know Back to the Future, Team Wolf, all those kind of films. I, you know, I adored adored his work and seeing him drop down to a supporting role at that time 
I was just like, why, why, why is Michael J. Fox in a supporting role in this movie? It's ridiculous. And, and it put me off it. And then looking back on it again today, he puts in an amazing performance. He's like yeah. the nervous energy of the presidency is, is all there in, in his role. Um, yeah. you, you get that. And which is obviously Douglas is, is, is comes across as that calm in control president. You need someone to bring that, that, that nervous energy, that constant, I'm working 18 hour days kind of, energy to 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 the to, to the film and he does that brilliantly yeah as as you said adam uh, this this isn't the west wing but michael j fox gives it that that sort of urgency he 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 thinks he's in the west wing um whereas none of the other characters are you know and uh, you'd have a character like that in a frank capra movie he's great he 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 gets that that his character some someone's got to do the work, you know. Not not only on screen with everybody else so laid back, but but in the story too. There's got to be this guy who sort of runs the White House, you know. And uh, I think he he sort of gets that. And um, um yeah, I, I can see how if you if you went into this as a Michael J. Fox fan at the time it would sit a bit awkwardly. But now you think, oh, what a great performance. You can't you can't really describe him as the heart and soul of the film because I don't think there is I, I I think there is it's a film that's so good it's got four or five hearts and souls you know there are so many important characters in if you if uh, that, that that need to be there and are all doing the right thing and doing the good thing and um, as you say the, the 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 mighty mighty potential drawback is the central plot. Um, which is which is a pretty pretty um, uh, sort of tough place to be, you know. If you're writing a movie, is oh, at the main core of our plot is the weak point, you know. But even then, as you say, they they sort of gloss it over very early on by sort of explaining it away, and then the performances kick in, and um, Benning and Douglas just rise to the occasion, I think, and they just carry this unlikely story right through, and they make you believe it. Yeah, I think I think one of the other really good things about it is, is like they don't set up good guys and bad guys. Mm. You know, everyone's everyone's just a guy. Everyone's just yeah. a person. You know, like a male or female. They're just they're just people. They're just humans. Even even Richard Dreyfuss's evil Indeed. character, he's not. When you see him on TV, he's not coming out lying, Trump-esque lying, making stuff up as he goes. Even though they say he's making stuff up as he goes along, he doesn't actually say that he said i'm not saying that. i'm not saying that he insinuates and it's an evil it's an evil plot device but he delivers it in such a way that you think yeah he's just he's just a politician yeah you no know, he's yeah. a he's, he's a politician who stands opposite the president character yeah so, yeah i mean what what we've got basically is george bush and bill clinton yeah, yeah. And, and that's the time the film was made so yeah. uh, um and yeah. and yeah. the roles are played like that yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and 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 that for for the benefit of the film, I think as well, it adds yeah. a level of complexity to the the story that probably wouldn't have been there uh, had you made it more black and white. Of this guy, president's a good guy, and he's a bad guy, and we we need to get his bill through and all that kind of stuff. It was more nuanced than that, which we we, we shouldn't really we shouldn't really uh, be surprised that you know, Aaron Sorkin has made a very, very successful career writing amazing <laughs> screenplays for the past 25, 30 years. So, sure, um, sure. and this was this was another example of a great screenplay. Yeah. One that's overlooked, and I guess, in his career. 
Yeah. You know, obviously, because he's gone on to do West Wing and he's obviously nominated for an Oscar this year with Trial of the Chicago 7. But I think I do think the American president is probably seen as, as, as a lesser film in his career, which is a yeah. shame. Maybe, and, and I, I don't think it deserves that. And um, I, obviously the seed, the seed of the West Wing is in here because you've got Martin Sheen's presence, as you say, and there's even a line where Michael Douglas describes himself as, oh, I'm, I'm sort of a, I guess I'm sort of a West Wing president, you know, in terms of where, where he lives and where he does his business in, in the White House, you know. Even though it's completely unlike the West Wing in, in a certain sense, you can just see that the, 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 the seeds are there. Now, what 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 do what do we think about Rob Reiner's work on this? Um, I think it's good. I mean, the direction's not massively flashy. Again, it captures what he needs to capture. You know, you get the sense of it being a busy White House room. You get the sense of the um, the GDC office, and that that being the sort of like you know nervous sort of like we need to get these things through. You you get all the atmosphere of those movies, but similar to a Capra movie. You know, yeah. he, he manages to be in the right place at the right time with the right camera angle, I guess. Exactly. Is what it is, rather than this is going to be a great shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one one scene that exemplifies that, I think, it's just a, a, a shot that lingers on screen for like four or five seconds and then it's gone. And it's a shot of Annette Benning in the Oval Office on her own. She's the people come in and out of rooms, close doors, open doors, go out. And then suddenly there's this moment of quiet and Reiner gives us an overhead shot and she's in the Oval Office on her own and just sort of wondering what to do and looking around. And you wonder what fantasies are going through her head, you know, and, uh, um, and then it's over and it's beautifully done. But I think that's a nice thing because everyone else treats that as work yeah yeah you know, all the other characters it's not there's no um reverence for the office of the president in yeah, those characters yeah. because it's like going to work you it's know job, they, yeah. it's their job so it takes that outsider and you needed you need you needed a little shot just to, to reference that i think also one of the one of the one of the other shots that really stuck for me was the tracking shots when they're walking through the through through the white house yeah which yeah. Uh, I probably didn't get mentioned in any reviews, yet Martin Scorsese does it in Goodfellas or, you know, whatever. And it's like, oh, my, well, marvellous directorial uh, conceit. It's like, actually, you know, Ryan is doing it here and no one's shouting and bawling because it fits, because it fits the shot. Yeah, yeah. As as I say, Adam, I, th- I think that's also to do with sort of auteurist um, criticism, which I'm I'm as guilty of as anyone. You know, I, I I love my auteurs, and because of that, I I tend to sort of overlook directors like Reiner a little bit because there there doesn't seem to be that that connection between movies. and and the connection between themes, you know. But when when you look at this as an individual film, as I say, it's near perfect. Well, where where do we go from there? (laughs) Near perfect. Thanks very much for joining us on the CineLit podcast. We've discussed the peak of Reiner's career. Uh, Obviously, even though I enjoyed it, I I don't agree with that. I think there's there's a handful of movies. Like I I said, that my favorite, some of my my favorite movies are, are in his in his in his back catalogue um and, and they're not american president so should we move on to some of the others um i think the, the, the next one i want to talk about it kind of leads on in the sort of the romance stakes i guess uh, from the american president and also uh, probably where rob reiner is probably is the, the the latter part of his career ended up going because of this movie 
uh, it became known as a, rom- a romantic comedy director, I guess. Um, and that led to things like Rumor Has It and, and, and some of his later career work. Um, but When Harry Met Sally, um, for me, is one of the best romantic comedies of all time. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly up there with some of those great, great movies. Um, it's no American president, folks, but... <laughs> well, you see, it's not, but it, 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 well, for me it is. I think it is. I think it brings that sort of like... It's different. Obviously, it's a different one, but I think it manages to do that telling a story over a number of years device, which is done in a few movies, and it never really works that well because you know you get your actor. Oh, look, they've got long hair because they're young, and then then you see them older. Oh, and they've had a haircut because they've got back into the rat race, man. You know those kind of devices and conceits that they have in these type of movies spread over many years. Um, I think they manage that really well, mainly because of the of the of the leads. Um, I think in this, they, there's some sort of weird chemistry between these two characters. Yeah, again, this is a great star vehicle, mm. and and Reiner, um, if 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 Reiner has got a sort of characteristic, a trait, I, I think it's it's he's a director, and not ev- not every major director can do this. He's a director who's very 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 comfortable with the biggest stars in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, and he uses them. Yeah. You know, he's, he's he, and another one, you talk about linking, linking um, connective tissue between his, his films. I guess using of the same actors and not, in a sort of, and not in a sort of way that Scorsese will use De Niro or DiCaprio or someone like that, uh, where you feel like, particularly with DiCaprio, you feel like he's getting things greenlit. <laughs> he likes working with DiCaprio, but he's getting things greenlit because of DiCaprio. Whereas yeah. with this here, he feels like he, he, he works Billy Crystal on Spinal Tap, very small role. Yeah, and then he, he he comes back in in Princess Bride again, minor supporting role, and then he's ready to ready to work with Billy Crystal in a leading role. Yeah, yeah, he this, does that this, all the way through his career. Yeah, this this is something I've noticed that Ingmar Bergman does. You know, he'll he'll have Max von Sydow or or BB Anderson in as the star of of one of his big tentpole movies. You know, if you can describe Bergman as a tentpole filmmaker. And then, um, I mean, for instance, Von Sydow plays a pay, plays a petrol pump attendant in Wild Strawberries, you know. And and this is what Billy Crystal and Richard Dreyfuss and John Cusack end up doing in in Reiner's films, you know. They'll star in one, and then they'll have a walk on in the next. Yeah, yeah. And I think with with this one, it's it's um, Billy Crystal really established himself in this movie. He'd been knocking around trying to get onto the onto the Hollywood scene in a number of movies prior to this, but this was the one that really put him up there. And, yeah. you know, he became a star for a relatively short period before he went to Oscar hosting duties. We've talked a lot on the podcast on, on various episodes about this period of Hollywood around the time that when Harry Met Sally was made, where for the first time ever, TV stars were beginning to sort of filter into into cinema, and 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 it worked. You know, it it, it, it they sort of tried it in the past, and it had never quite worked out. You know, it was like you couldn't make this transition from the small screen to the large. You know, and suddenly in the late eighties, it started happening, and it started working for Michael J. Fox, for instance. You know, mm-hmm. for John Travolta, um, and um, and for Danny DeVito. Uh, um, uh, spectacularly, but uh, Billy Crystal had come out of uh, out of soap, which was the player on on, on a soap opera, and uh, this was really Crystal's breakthrough movie. You know, he took, dabbled in film 
through the mid 80s and as you say done a few bit parts for Reiner but um, this was where he emerged as a star this was where this was the film you came out of and thought I want to see Billy Crystal in more movies yeah, I mean, it's one. It's, he was part of the Saturday Night Live guys as well, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Cast. I mean, again, the 1980s seems to be uh, littered with um, people <laughs> who got their launch in Saturday Night Live. We talked about it with Steve Martin, who didn't get his launch on Saturday Night Live, but made significant appearances um, on on those. Um, and, yeah, and Billy Crystal is another one of those guys. Um, but he I mean, he tried been trying for a few years. He'd done like um, Running Scared in '86. Uh, trying to tap into that sort of like um, uh, comedians doing cop movies, <laughs> and yeah. it, didn't, it didn't quite hit. And it, you know, throw Mama from the train, I guess, was a was was a hit. And then this followed on from that, um, and really put him up in a tippy top, I guess, at that period. Alongside, arguably, one of the biggest um, female leads of the nineteen eighties, Meg Ryan. Um, yeah, who who when I was. 14, 15 was, I had such a crush on Meg Ryan when I was like, when I was in my teenage years, you know, and, and this movie particularly, uh, where it, it just, um, I don't know, there's something about this movie that appealed to me as a teenager and also appealed to me as a writer. Uh, and I was doing a lot of acting at amateur theatre at the time as well. And that also appealed to me as well. I think the structure really helped the idea that it's spread out over many years and it's like little snippets of people's lives really appealed to me well again if 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 there is an auteur in in at work in when harry met sally it's it's not rhino it's nora efron i think yeah yeah i think definitely yeah um yeah the screenplays it, it, it is very it's very good it's very very good yeah. screenplay. And, and, it, and it's very nora efron you know she's gone she's gone on to make a career out of that sort of thing and and uh um and uh yeah it it uh it's almost more an Efron film than it is a Reiner film. And, but again, I think that shows his qualities in not only being able to, to comfortably work with the best actors in Hollywood, but with, with the best writers and with the best technicians. You know, I, I, I think he's just someone who's very, very capable on set. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that's, that definitely comes across. I think the screenplays from the movies in the 80s and the early 90s are top-level screenplays. And I think when he's fallen down is when he's gotten the later films. The screenplays just aren't aren't up to scratch. To be perfectly to perfect blunt, they're just not good enough. And I don't think any amount of directing or acting saves that. I mean, you've got to have the script right. And I think he had the script right in about ten movies in about a ten twelve year period. He had the script bang on, uh, working with Sorkin and working with uh, Nora Ephron uh, and others uh, with great screenplays. One other thing occurred to me that is obviously it just established Meg Ryan as the the rom com queen, yeah. and she never, sadly, never really overcome that throughout her career. She was always the rom com uh, actress. Yeah. Well, I think she peaks. She peaks in this film. I think. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, when you think Meg Ryan, you immediately think when Harry met Sally, or I do. I think people think maybe uh, Sleepers in Seattle is is. is 
she was in that one, wasn't she? And yeah, that was. Yeah, but, but again, that that sort oh, that it's because sort of, of this. Spin yeah. off from it. Oh no! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she yeah, she yeah. she only did rom coms. That was all yeah, she did. Yeah, did yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and it, it's the same. It's the same team. It's 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 her and Nora Ephron sort of continuing on into the nineties. You yeah. know, and so it all stems really from this. Now we're talking about how great the the scripts are. We're sort of saying, oh yeah, when Reiner had a good script, he made a good movie. I think that might that might suggest that we're doing him down a little bit but i i think he works really well with a good script and i think he knows yeah. that he knows the quality of the writing but it's then down to him to get the performances out of the actors and to make that script breathe and i think he does that super yeah well it's like i said in the intro it's like he takes a-list material and turns it into a-plus material i think that i think that's that's his key i think taking a c-level script i don't think he can do much with that no. whereas i think he can really do something with a with a with a, a an a script or a b script you know you can really get the most out of that and improve on it uh, with his direction uh, a wonderful movie i think i think it deserves to be seen and seen again we don't have rom-coms that much anymore i think the, the rom-com has gone out of cinema i think one of my my big theories about uh, <laughs> about movie making is that earnestness has gone from cinema you know you can't make an earnest love story anymore it's got to be cut with something else you can't you just can't do it anymore but maybe we should be that's, yeah, that's yeah. Mad. and uh, be- before we move on the uh, list- listeners who were hoping that uh, adam was going to do the cat's deli scene and that i was going to come in with the uh, the one line zinger at the end i'm afraid we- we're probably going to disappoint you aren't we yeah i, I, I think <laughs> nobody wants to hear that um yeah wash your ears out um and one other thing as well just just as it occurred to me meg ryan as a name is a great hollywood name I haven't got time to be saying Angelina Jolie. It's too many syllables. <laughs> and I think that's, that's, that's Hollywood actresses, get your name sorted out as you're coming in. At least amount of syllables as possible. That's, that's, that's my take on these things. <laughs> cool. Okay, so let's move, let's move on from, from When Harry Met Sally because, I mean, it, it's, it's a great movie, but there's other, uh, other areas to explore. Let's jump back to his very first movie. Uh, and we, we're talking, this is Spinal Tap. Oh. Um, is this a Rob Reiner movie? I'd say very much so. I'd say it's a very personal film for him. I mean, he's he's in it for one thing. He 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 plays um, the the Marty DeBerge character, who's he's all all the reviews of the film said, oh, it's it, it's it's a, a take on Martin Scorsese in the Last Waltz and so on. Uh, I I think I think it's Reiner trying to get his own face on screen, and I think I think he's sort of. Um, come out of the blocks here and said, "Look, this is my first movie. You know, I'm I'm going to be in it. I'm going to centre it around me. You know, and the other characters can sort of act around me. I, I think it's very much a Rob Reiner film, and I think you know there are elements of it that I think carry forward into what he did later. For one thing, it's a love story between uh, Davidson Hubbins and Nigel uh, Tuffle. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you watch those glances at the end, you know, yeah. and when, when, he, when he sort of invites him onto stage and so on. It's a break-up and get-back-together story. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I, it is, but I think there's much more going on in this movie. Oh, there is. There um, is. I, I, re, I literally re-watched it this morning twice. I watched it once through, and then I also watched it because it has one of the greatest audio commentaries. Um, any movie has put on DVD has had uh, most movies got audio commentaries now, but this this 
this is the one that sets the bar. It absolutely sets the bar. People who don't listen to audio commentaries, this is the one for you. This is the one, yeah. It's it's obviously the the, the three band members uh, in character commenting on the film that that, <laughs> that they were they were in, and, and it's just it's just stellar. And it obviously adds to the to the because obviously it's a documentary, it's a mockumentary that second layer of an audio commentary where they're commenting on what went on behind the scenes of the documentary is it, it, yeah it's priceless and you know everyone's dead it's just like, yeah, he's yeah. dead now she's dead now it's just like, <laughs> such a great little conceit yeah but but the films have such a life in that sense as well i mean to to this day you know the the actors will will still come out and do these characters and and do gigs or do talk show appearances or whatever and in between their careers you know in, in when they've all gone off and done other things and we'll talk about that in a minute but uh, um they've they've always come back to spinal tap and they've kept these characters alive and i yeah. I, I think that's great and that's that's i mean when when you said the question is it a rob reiner film i think the answer to that is Yes, it very much is, and I think there's an argument to say it is a Rob Reiner film, but it's been taken out of his hands ever since. It was a uh, Rob Reiner film at the time, and it hasn't been ever since. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones that, as as the film's progressing, you can see it being taken away from him. Because, I mean, I mean the, the guys are just, they inhabit those roles. Yeah. You, I think one of the great things about this movie is, even though it is a comedy and it is a spoof and it is uh, meant to be funny, it's not so ridiculous that you lose the fact that this could be a band. Yeah. You know, some later, some later documentaries, uh, spoof documentaries, that kind of thing. You kind of forget that as you're watching. Or for instance, like Popstar, the Andy Samberg thing. You don't believe that they're a real band and that's a, that's yeah. a real unit. Yeah. You, you you see it as a, a, a thing that's spoofing. Uh, the, the genre and, uh, uh, and the music, but with Spinal Tap, you you believe that they are a band, yeah. and, and, and everything you, that happens to them, no matter how ludicrous, is still believable. Yeah, well, you can imagine it happening to Ozzy Osbourne, can't yeah, you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you really oh, can. Yeah, and one of the other things that are, are that you're actually just talking about these these they come back to these characters time and time again over the years is that. And the film is kind of like it's lived beyond the bands it's spoofing, you know. Yeah. You know, they they go they go on tour with Saxon um yeah, yeah. to sort of like you know research the, the, the role beforehand and like you know it's they, they, they live way beyond a lot of those 80s rock bands yeah. now. I mean to to the point where as you've already proved we we know the names of the band members. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. They're, they're, they're famous rock musicians. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean well that's what I'm saying if you if you put a spinal tap. And they, because they have done tours, they have done sort of like you know, musical performances. They will be above a lot of the acts that they're spoofing now. Yeah, on the yeah. bill, on the billing. Yeah. So yeah. you know, you, you, you can't get any any greater <laughs> um, uh, compliment there from, than that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the performances are, are, are brilliant. You know, I, in fact, I'd, I'd, I'd say that uh, Christopher Guest and, and Michael McKean may not have done anything better. I, I really think we're getting career career best here from them. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting one of the other things I find really really nice about it is that they're not they're not vying for screen time. No, they don't no. seem to be talking. Oh, I've got the best line. I want to put this line in now. So, so often, some of my favourite lines are just kind of like said off 
off screen almost, or, yeah, or like yeah. just as an aside. And you think, oh, that's a brilliant line, and it's like it's it's brilliant, but it's also brilliant that it was said almost like as a second thought. Yeah, it is. It, the, the, you know, there, there are. I, I'm sure a, a lot of it has got a sort of ad lib or improv sort of feel to it. You know, Reiner, Reiner sort of goes with that as well. He lets that play and um, he, he lets people have a little smirk or a laugh or do um, a, a little aside or something. And I, I think I think there's such a rivalry between the characters on screen. It's a bit like the American president in that sense. There's such a rivalry between Michael Douglas and Richard Dreyfus in that movie that... Um, you can tell there isn't a rivalry between the actors, you know, and I think that plays here, that in, in Reiner's very first film you get this, the characters may be bickering and maybe trying to one-up one another, but the actors are completely in tandem. Yeah, just, it just maybe, maybe I'm really convincing me, maybe they asked career best performances. Um, I'm, I'm very fond of best in show, <laughs> and I think there's some stellar performances in that. Um, again, another Rob, what would become a Rob Ryan trait is that there's no small roles uh, in this sure. in this movie. You know, you have fairly well-known actors or actors that are quality um, inhabiting small roles in this movie. Angelica Houston is it crops up very minor role. Um, you got Dana Carvey as a mime waiter. Yeah, you know, yeah. then well, Billy Crystal again. He's, he's Billy Crystal's assistant, and yeah. Billy Crystal's part is tiny. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But Billy Crystal, but even beyond the, you got Bruno Kirby um, as yeah, a limo, yeah. as a limo driver obsessed with Frank Sinatra, which is brilliant. You know, yeah, who, who's late? Who, who again is later seen in uh, almost stealing the show in When Harry Met Sally? I think yeah, he's yeah. great in that. So, uh, but yeah, really, really good in this. And and again, um, we were talking before we started recording today and mentioned that uh, um, on on the disc versions of This Is Spinal Tap, there's there's almost a second movie sort of in between the first one um, made out of outtakes, which I'm sure a lot of you will, will have seen if you're big Tap fans. And it's great. It's, it's like, oh, we, we've got Spinal Tap 2 here, you know, or Spinal Tap 1.5. And um, I mean, the outtakes on most other DVDs or Blu-rays, they're 20 minutes and you, you may not bother watching them or, um, you know, they, they might be scenes that have been left out because they're not very good or whatever. Here you get Spinal Tap two, and it's great. I think with the with this sort of like improvisational nature of, of of the working process on this movie, there's naturally a lot. You just keep the camera running. You never know when you're going to get gold. And, you know, and I think, and, I think and you do get him. I mean, Bruno Kirby is a perfect example because there's so much of him on the cutting room floor from the original <laughs> film. There's some great stuff. Um, yeah, I, mean, I heartily recommend going and seeing that, um, uh, that buying that second disc. One of my um, favorite moments of my film programming career uh, revolves around uh, Spinal Tap. Um, I programmed Spinal Tap numerous times, but I programmed it <laughs> to play at Quad in Derby on the 11th of November, 2011, at 11 minutes past 11. <laughs> so it was all the 11s. I went straight to 11. We even did a countdown from 11 before we started the film. So, um, you know, things like that amuse me and uh, I, I amuse the audience for another night as well, so you're going to do a, a movie where it's got such an iconic scene of this this goes to 11 you need to to, to, to play on that uh, should we move on to one of my favorites but not one of yours daryl <laughs> not one of yours i think i think we're gonna have a labyrinth moment here again um but the princess bride one of my favorites i love the book 
I love the film. I loved it as a kid. I love it as an adult. I love it re- reintroducing it to my son. He loves it. What's your problem, Daryl? <laughs> it's a film that just seems to try a little bit too hard for me, and uh, it, it uh, and that 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 sort of kills the spirit of it for me a little bit. You know, I, I think we ought to um, sort of explain to some people what what Princess Bride is, because there may be people that haven't seen it. And, I don't and, believe that. You don't. No, well, we, we, we won't explain it then. We'll, mm. we'll, we'll, uh, no, please, please explain. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's based based on William Goldman uh, novel, I believe, and and the whole the whole point of it was to um, sort of satirise or parody or play a little bit, play around with the sort of concepts of the traditional fairy tale or the traditional sort of swashbuckling adventure story. And so then we've got Goldman um, hooking up with uh, with Rob Reiner. Reiner's on to, what, his fourth... This is his fourth feature film, isn't it? After uh, Tap, um, Sure Thing and Stand By Me. Yeah. And um, and again, it's it's a completely different thing. It's a complete remove from what he's done before. And uh, so it's a film version of, of this novel, which is an attempt to sort of uh, guy and play around with a little bit the um, the cliches of the fairy story or the um, the sort of children's adventure story. So uh, and for me, yeah, it just tries that little bit too hard, and it it seems to fall flat for me. I I I, I think I there are there are things about it I love, and in particular, I love the supporting performances. You got Billy in there again, Billy Crystal team, teaming up with Carol Kane, who I think steals the movie. And I wish I wish it had been a film about her because I I love her character. Um, you've then got um, there's Peter Cook in a in a rare movie appearance, Mel Smith who who steals the show in his scenes, and they. They're what I remember from the film, more more than the leads, who seem a little bit flat to me. It, it's a nice idea, but it just doesn't quite come off in, in the way that I don't think... May, maybe maybe it was this, this mid-'80s uh, sort of fantasy movie thing that didn't appeal to me because I didn't like Labyrinth. I didn't really like uh, Ridley Scott's Legend all that much. There were one or two other films around at the time that I wasn't keen on. Uh, which were in the same sort of ballpark, and yeah, this I, I I actually liked this more when it was first released than than I did seeing it again recently. It had it had lost a lot of its glitter for me. Oh wow, okay, that's um, I think that goes against a lot of what people think nowadays. Think at the oh, people, yeah, yeah. people think at the time it was uh, not a flop, but it wasn't a hit, and I think it's grown in presence. Uh, over the years I think for me it's I mean if I'm going to be critical about it I mean I do love the film but if I'm going to be critical about it I think the two leads are they're fairly bland hero types you know um isn't isn't there an element in there that they're they're sort of meant to be though isn't that part of the gag possibly but I think the princess is definitely way is not she doesn't have much to do Robin Wright doesn't have much to do in this movie uh Carrie always has a little bit more you know, with with his when he adopts the um, Dread Pirate Roberts and the sort of like dry, sardonic humour that he brings to, to to the to the part. But Robin Wright's not given much to to, to go on, really. She's like, stand there, look pretty. Stand there, look pretty. Stand there, get captured. Uh, and and there's not much to go on with that. But then equally, that is what princess stories were about. You know, yeah. this this is this is this is a years and years ago. You know, this is like. You're going back to hold the idea of fairy tales and stories like that. The princesses were there to be saved, so it may, you know it, it's probably 
written into the to the screenplay that that's the kind of point of her role is to is to be that character that fairly bland princess character um, yeah yeah but for me that doesn't matter it's brought to life by its supporting characters who are there's there's many of them you know i mean in other movies where you watch a movie and you think you're not convinced by the lead you it doesn't matter because you are blown away by the supporting roles and i think in this one it, it heads and head and shoulders above most movies and in, in the quality that the supporting leads bring to the role Man, mandy i think in, he's fantastic you know he's the one that people remember yeah well, he, he is the life of this picture. Mm, yeah. Absolutely, he, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's I, I think people sort of think back on the film and almost think of him as being the main character. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. He's, he's certainly the one who makes most impact. Well, he's, he's the one on the T-shirts, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. The, the quotes and things like that. You know, the, the, the you know, my name is Enio Montoya, you kill my father, prepare to die. That is, that is the line that's repeated over yeah. and over again. Like, like you said, there's, there's so many little small minor roles that just, elevate this movie again well, one, again a trait the, of rhino movies yeah yeah the one we've not mentioned is peter falk of course who who sort of he, he plays on the thing that happens we'll we'll talk about later on in uh, stand by me he's got the sort of richard dreyfus in stand by me role here you know yeah i was just so, saying well, the, the book i mean that, that's that's one of the things that i don't think works very well in in the princess bride is the sort of like the telling of the story i i agree i agree it's, it's better in stand by me i think yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think well, I think it's different. I, I think in Stand by Me, the person telling the story is what's it's happening to them. Yeah, yeah. And I think with 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 the grandpa and the and the grandson, it's e- echoing the book and the, and the books. The conceit in the book is that William Goldman's the author, and he's he's bought this book for his son that he read as a kid and he loved, and his granddad used to read it to him and he loved it. And then when he gets the book and reads it, it's awful. It's full of dense um, passages about lineages of kings and all that kind of stuff. In, in a Lord of the Rings kind of like really dense fantasy book. And he's like, what is going on? I didn't get any of this. And he's, he's like grandfather just took out all the boring bits and read the, read the good bits. And I think yeah. that conceit in the book is a really clever conceit and it works very well in the book. But it doesn't, I don't think it transfers very well at all. I think arguably you could, done, you could have just done without that. And it could have been like a little scroll at the start on the screen, you know, a la, like a Star Wars or something like that, where you, you, you establish the story and then go straight into that world. Then, then again, you know, who who doesn't want to see Peter Falk on screen? So uh... sure, I mean, I, I love Peter Falk, but yeah, uh, yeah it, it, he does. Those those scenes do feel superfluous and yeah. Yeah. sort of like glint in his eye at the end that he's the lead character in in the movie. It's just it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work. That that doesn't work for me, but. It's just so funny and so enjoyable that I don't care. I don't. I really don't care. Uh, and I think, I think if it was another type of movie, Daryl, you might have given it a bit of leeway. <laughs> if this was a horror Possibly, movie yeah. I mean, or, or, or something like that, you might go, oh, "I don't matter because I'm enjoying myself too much." And it's like, yeah, may, maybe with 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 horror or with a spaghetti western or something, I, I, I might I might have gone with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this just just sort of misses the mark more than it should do for me um, constantly throughout. And as I say, it always gets packed up because you always know there's going to be a really great little 30-second cameo coming along any minute, and, and that, that keeps you watching. But, uh, but yeah, you, you, you shouldn't come away from a film raving about Mel Smith in, instead of the stars, you know. 
I, I, don't know, I think it's a great movie uh, for me. And I think it's one that has lived on and will live on. And arguably when Rob Reiner passes away many, many years from now, it's going to be one of those ones that people pluck out as, as for, for the first, first two lines of the obituary. Yeah, I, I guess so. But this wasn't the first time he would work with William Goldman. It was, it was the first time, but it's not the, the last time he would work with William Goldman. He worked with William Goldman on, on the screenplay for Misery, the Stephen King novel. Now, arguably, you could say Rob Reiner is one of two directors that really seem to get Stephen King and deliver great Stephen King adaptations. Maybe three. Frank Darabond being obviously the, 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 the main one with um, The Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption, obviously. And arguably Mick Garris just through the number of adaptations of Stephen King where they done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think Darabont almost stole in and, and took the baton from, from Rob Reiner because Reiner's obviously so immersed in King that he, he even named his production company Castle Rock right. after King's uh, fictional town, you know. Reiner's done two King adaptations, Stand By Me, which we'll talk about in greater depth. But uh, Misery, just to link that in with Princess Bride, um, yeah, William Goldman's script based on the King novel. Another one I'm, I'm not so much of a fan of. I mean, it was an Oscar winner. You know, it won, mm, yeah. won the best, best actress at the Oscars for Kathy Bates. And maybe a not undeserved award, but I, I, I've always thought her performance goes a little bit over the top. And I've seen other people do that better, you know, um, horror movies and this type of thriller have uh, um, sort of female focused thriller have a history going right back to uh, whatever happened to baby Jane of these over the top um, uh, sort of uh, larger than life female performances. And for me, it was like, okay, I, I, it's a good performance, but why has this one been singled out for awards when I can reel off another dozen which I think are better? You know, from- well, I, know I think that's the problem being a horror fan um, and being so immersed in horror fan. Whenever you see a horror fan that a horror film that sticks its head above the uh, the turret and gets mainstream recognition on Oscar nominations, there's always ten films that did it better and, yeah. and were and were Italian. Or were, you oh, know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. like there's always movies out there that did it better, but to the general public. They're just seeing these ones. They're not seeing yeah. those other roles. They're, they're just seeing Kathy Bates in Misery. Or... Oh, sure. I, th- I think horror fans did appreciate the fact that Kathy Bates had been recognised for this, though, because at that time, and it's not really changed all that much um, in the intervening years, at that time, Horror was famous for never winning Oscars. You know, um, there'd been nominations in the 70s for uh, actors in films like The Exorcist and Carrie, but you knew they weren't going to win. Um, Ruth Gordon had won an Oscar for Rosemary's Baby. You have to go right back to the 1930s to Frederick March to get a, a, a Best Actor Oscar for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so there was this big thing among the horror community of when's, when's one of our people going to win um, a, a Best Actor or Best Actress at the Oscars? And then suddenly in the early 90s, bang, 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 we got three in the space of 12 months. Kathy Bates here and then the two for Silence of the Lambs the following mm, year. So Kathy yes. so sort of opened the opened the gates a little bit in that sense. And it's a good, it's a good performance and uh, it, it's an award-worthy performance, I 
nothing. But uh, yeah, maybe it is that thing for me. I'm I'm too much of a nerd, and I'm saying, well, why, why didn't they give it to Betty Davis in 1962? You know, but there you go. Well, yeah, that's a bit. It's a bit harsh on on poor Kathy. Um, yeah. I think I think she does deliver. I, I I do agree. I think she goes a bit over the top. And I think also the the for me the book's not a brilliant king. For no, me. no, no. And and I th- I think I think there are failings in the film, and I th- I don't think they're Reiner's fault. I think they all stem from the novel. And I think Will- William Goldman must have had a difficult time working this into a script. He's done the best that he can. Reiner's done the best that he can. They've sort of saddled themselves with with something that's a little bit difficult to get on screen here. I mean, how how do you how do you how do you make something cinematic about a guy who's who's in bed? I mean, they do. They do manage some. To me, I was, uh, we're talking about like it's an absolute disaster, and it's it's oh, by no, by no no means a disaster. It's a very tense psychological thriller, I guess, in in, in the best sense of the word. But yeah, like like you say, it's hundred minutes, whatever it is, of a man in bed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know, which which King had a sort of thing about in his novels at the time. He'd he'd, he'd written Cujo, which is set in the back of a car. He then went on to write Gerald's Game, which yeah. is a, a game about a character who's in bed. You know, and and he seemed to be doing these little sort of microcosmic things in his novels, and that works as a writer's exercise. I'm not sure that it transmits even to a reader necessarily. You know, and it's certainly very very difficult to put on film. I'm, I'm not convinced by the lead actor here. We've got James Kahn sort of making a little bit of a comeback in this movie. You know, his, he was past his best, I think. And this is probably his last great role. He's a little bit eye-rolling for me. I, I, I'd like to see Richard Dreyfus in that part. Yeah, I don't buy him as, as, a, as, a, as an author, <laughs> I'll be honest. No, I mean, no, I mean, no. Ultimately. Yeah, it's 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 okay. I mean, arguably, maybe maybe his his performance led to Kathy Bates going a bit over the top mm, to possibly. make up, make up the, the gap the, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, possible, possible. Yeah. Which is good acting on her part, mm. if that's if that's true, for, for for an actor to actually respond to the the other lead performance in that way. That that I I can see that. I I can absolutely see that. Yeah, no, it just just feel that way to me. Um, I think the problem, one of the problems with, with again, we talked about the source material. Stephen King was cranking out novels at such a pace. You know, he was he was hooked on cocaine. <laughs> he was like he was cranking out novels every six months. So if a movie, if a book didn't land as well as it should have done, it doesn't matter. In like six weeks' time, there's another one coming out. You know, he, yeah. he had, and and they were all being filmed as well. There, there was this sort of unwritten rule that you had to make a movie out of them. Had there been massively successful Stephen King's, obviously Stand By Me was a was a huge success, but I don't think people necessarily saw that as a King adaptation. No, um, no that, I think that was the point with that. Um, that was the whole point was that they didn't sell it as as Stephen King, which was the same with Shawshank Redemption, which of course is the big Stephen King movie, um, the big movie. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting that the big big hit. Stephen King films are the ones where they sort of try and elbow his name out of the credits. Yeah, I mean, early on, I mean, obviously, The, the Shining didn't wasn't a hit, despite it's now become uh, a big a big film in, in in the world of cinema. It wasn't a hit at the time. It was it was like even nominated for a Razzie in the opening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first year it came <laughs> in, out. So. In, in the first Razzies, yeah. Yeah, so it's not it's not a woman movie that was well liked on release. Carrie was a hit, but it was a minor horror hit, you know. And, and King wasn't particularly known then. He wasn't Stephen King. He wasn't a brand back then. So 
So, I mean, we'd had a run of, of, of his films being adapted, but none of them had hit the the real peak of, of what Misery did. Misery really pushed through that, adapted a horror novel, Stephen King's, and made a lot of money off it. Um, I don't think we had another one until it. Is it the next big, big, yeah. big yeah. hit? Yes, it was, I think. Yeah, there, there, there were a lot of adaptations in between, all fairly sort of middling and uh, variable at the box office and variable critically and variable within sort of audience uh, response and recognition. So, yeah, it came along and that that had its its very variance in terms of criticism and audience response. But in terms of box office, it went through the roof. Yeah, it made it made up for the uh, lack of criticism <laughs> with massive amounts yeah. of cash. No, uh, no, nobody was reading the reviews. They were too busy looking uh, at their online bank accounts. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think we can segue neatly from it into talking about Stand by Me because I I, yeah. I think they've they've got a very very strong connection, and I think Stand by Me takes this connection and handles it far better than. Either King in his original It source novel or the two uh, Andy Muschietti uh, movies that we've seen recently. And that is the the spirit of childhood and the spirit of yeah. being in a gang when you're a little kid, you know. And I think Stand By Me, which is another another Reiner classic, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, one uh, of my favourites as a kid yeah, growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was a teenager and I was, I was interested in, in movies, I was interested in writing and acting and things like that. And this this really spoke to me. I remember seeing it late late night on BBC Two and Channel Four or whatever it was that, on a Sunday evening and just thinking, this is, this is exactly the movie I would like to make at one point. I don't necessarily feel like now, but at the time, it was just, this, this is a perfect structure of it, the flashback, the looking back on summer's past, the kids hanging out, the coming of age style um, drama uh, really spoke to me at that time. And also the, just to do the central conceit as a, of the kids, their first discovery of death and, you yeah. know, uh, as a central um, theme of the film, um, really, really spoke to me as a kid. Yeah, well, I, I know, Adam, that you uh, a couple of years ago when uh, Hunt for the Wilder People came out, I know you picked that as your film of the year. And I can I can see the the Stand By Me fan in you loving that that movie. Um, it's not quite the same, but there's some of that spirit there. Um, yeah, and I can see why you like that movie so much. Um, and Stand By Me, I think, is is. A, a brilliant rite of passage movie. And I think a lot of this is down to Rob Reiner. I'm going to keep sort of emphasising what Reiner does on these films. And I think with this one, he brings a genuine sense of metaphor to it. Basically, the the the, the story is based on a Stephen King novella called The Body, which uh, was published in the same collection as uh, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which of course then got got filmed. And also in the same in the same collection was a, a story called um, Apt Pupil, which which got made into a movie and actually didn't get retitled. The, the one that the one that got made into a film called Apt Pupil, but uh, but the, the the Body by Stephen King. You, when when Reiner did the film, they changed the title. There, there was a bit of a trend at the time for naming films after after sort of revived pop songs from from the sixties and seventies, wasn't there? And uh, and so they sort of went with that. 
you could, if you were going to sell something and put Stephen King, the body all over the posters, you know, you weren't going to get the audience that they wanted. So I think they were, for once, I, I think they were right in doing all of that and in sort of lessening the, 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 the King connection. But this is a great rite of passage movie. It's a great, it's almost like a heart of darkness story in a way for, for kids, you know, it's a pocket yeah. now for kids. And um, um, I think what Reiner does is he, he has, he has this gang of kids walking down these train tracks, miles and miles of train track, in order to, to reach this quest at the end, which is rumours that there's the dead body of another kid at the end of the line, you know. And he turns this into an absolute epic quest, in a, but on a very small scale. And I, and I think his use, his choice of camera angles, his choice of shots, his use of the landscape, his use of the railway line within that landscape, brings out the symbolic qualities of it. Um, I, I, I really think it plays as a sort of little mini epic. Yeah, no, I, I, I heartily agree with that. I think, I think the rail, the railroad, walking down the railroad, there's, there's, there's a number of ways you can symbolically look at that. You know, it's like this, this, there's no turns. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. This is a journey where you are going to go straight to this, this goal. And then there's no getting off the tracks, although yeah. they do get off the tracks, ironically enough. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's definitely that that symbolic metaphor that runs through the heart of the film. Yeah. And I, I just, yeah, I, there's just something about this movie that makes me feel it, it's 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 a nostalgia for something I never really experienced. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nostalgia for 1960s, 1950s Americana, you know. Yeah, yeah. Which... This this is this is this is the 1950s kid gang that you, me and you, would have wanted to be in, yeah, exactly. and and we well, we never could be, you know. Um, yeah, but you're right. You do you do get the feeling that you're part of this gang as you watch, or that you were part of it, and we weren't. <laughs> no, but that's that's the greatness of the storytelling, and, and arguably one of those traits of Stephen King's of having having the, a gang of kids and and lost summers and that kind of um, trait that runs through his work. I don't think has been brought to the screen as successfully as Stand by Me. No, no, um, it, it, it no, just no. nailed. Well, it it the, the two it films try very hard, and their 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 gang of kids is very very good, I think. But it's it's nothing like this. It's not got the heart of this. It's not got the symbolism of this. It's not got the significance. I mean, I mean, we're talking about the train tracks as metaphor here, but there's one scene in the film where we actually see the train tracks in action. Mm. Uh, being used for what they're designed for, and for me, it's it's the best train chugging up behind the characters scene since Oh Mr Porter in 1937. Um, I, I think it's brilliant. It's a, a marvelous little scene, and it suddenly whisks away that whole metaphoric thing and says, "Look, there's a real train. Mm. Our characters are in genuine peril now. You know, you've been watching this film, making notes about it and being all sooty about it and talking about the journey through life and the journey through adolescence and all this. There's now a big train coming up behind them and they've got to get out of the way. That's life. It's, it's great. It's great. It's great. That's life, though. You know, there's always a big train ready to run you over, you know. So it, so it is a metaphor as well. Yes. I, 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 yeah, it's multi-leveled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, work, it works either way. And um, there's a scene where the guys end up in a swamp and they get leeches all over them. And again, I suppose that that it's, it's the same, you know, it's happening to the characters, but it's all part of life's long journey, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I really, I really love this movie. And, and, 
and was 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 delighted to revisit again. Uh, and, and that's not always the case with movies like this, where you love as a kid and it's about being a kid. And when you get older, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to watch films about being a kid anymore. I'm an adult, you know. So um, sometimes I get that vibe when watching these. But movies. this, that, this, this, this is a, this is a very adult film. Yeah, that. yeah. That's that's the point. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. C- couple more points about it. I, I think it's got a brilliant, brilliant use of the uh, Chekhov's gun principle, where the gun actually not only appears in the first act but gets fired. Yeah. And and but then still, so it seems to go against all the principles of Chekhov, and yet it still comes into play in Act Three, even though it's been fired. The Chekhov's gun thing being that if you introduce a gun into a into a story or a plot, it has to be used. Yeah, yeah. But you introduce it in Act One, and it gets used in Act Three. And here they introduce it and use it in Act One, and then it still comes into significant play. At the end, I think it's brilliantly done. And then the, I think the only other sort of key point to mention about the movie is um, the story, the fable of Lardass Hogan, mm-hmm. which we've got to address. Yeah, the 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 competition, the film within a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, what a great device. And King writes this into his story, and it's very it's very very good on on the page. But Reiner turned it into a little mini movie. It's almost it's almost like that Monty Python thing with Monty Python's Meaning of Life, where the film's got its own supporting short, you know. And Reiner stops his film in the middle and gives you this this other thing, this other movie, and it's well, great. I, yeah. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think I think it's a reference to sort of like you have Richard Dreyfus as a fifty year old man, forty year old man, whatever, telling the story of Stand by Me. Yeah. Then you also have the 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old kids telling their story. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you, and you see that. And this is, I guess, this is where the directorial uh, talents of Rob Reiner comes. He recognises that the, 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 the movie within the movie needs to be shot different to the way the others are shot. Yeah. yeah. So it has yeah. this slightly so stylistic, stylistic hyper-real hyper sort of like feel to it, uh, which plays into the way that a, a child's mind would work and tell the story. Yeah, the other connection with Monty Python's meaning of life, which I'm, I'm desperate to make these connections between, <laughs> is it's it's an even more outrageous vomit scene than the one in the Python yeah. movie, <laughs> yeah. which is which is a bold statement to make. Yeah, but how how can you possibly top that? Well, hold my beer, hold my beer, and hold yeah. my blueberry pie. You yeah, know? <laughs> hold my milk. I think is uh, you know they're, they're underage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dreyfus again very good in it and we, we get John Cusack in it as well very briefly but very very significantly I think he, he plays a he, he plays a character who, who the drama all seems to sort of hinge on or, or sort of spring from in, in, in a sense he's the reason why the, the, at least one of the kids is is what they are, you know, and 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 um, uh, and again you've got this idea that Cusack has just been the star of Reiner's previous film, The Sure Thing, and is now in a, a very tiny, minor role in this one, but quite a significant one. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth mentioning The Sure Thing briefly as well, because uh, that, that was Reiner's second movie. 
So he's coming off Spinal Tap and everyone's thinking, what's he going to do next? Is it going to be another comedy? And don't forget, this is right in the middle of the period when his dad is making these great Steve Martin comedies as well. So I think it's almost expected that, oh, yeah, his next film's going to be a, a, a comedy. But it's something a little bit different. And what, what he's done here, he's sort of done a Princess Bride. What he's done is he's taken the, the template of Porky's and all of those crass sort of teenage sex comedies and he's made a drama out of it um and a really good one and again like stand by me it it's sort of a, a a journey movie it's a road movie um and and cusack starring in it and i think it really really does subvert and and turn into a grown-up film that that sort of um rather crass sort of teen sex comedy thing and um, and it shows what you can do with that sort of material. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a wolf in American sex comedy clothing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you, know? yeah. you you watch it and you think you're getting one thing, and you come out of it, and you say, "Well, yeah. that, was, that was actually way better than it had any right to be." Yeah, yeah. Um, which is not necessarily the best compliment in the world, but <laughs> you know, it, it's a great, it's a it's a very good movie and a surprising one in between. You know, after coming after Spinal Tap and coming before Stand by Me. It's it, it's a film that tells you you're not going to get a handle on Rob Reiner's career. You yeah. you you are not going to know what he's going to do next. And uh, I think for for so many years we didn't. No, no, exactly. Yeah. I think one of the other ones we need to mention is probably a few good men. And a classic example again of what we've been talking about all the way through this: Rob Reiner working with the biggest stars in Hollywood, and controlling it and making something out of it and giving them a bit of a challenge I think or at least saying to them look if you're on my set you give your best I I want 10 out of 10 here no slacking and they they respond to that yeah I mean we reunites him with a bunch of different people but also as we've talked about before he has no qualms in dealing with the big stars and Tom Cruise was probably one of the biggest stars in the world at the time and Jack Nicholson was a legend yeah. <laughs> a legend yeah, yeah. and, we, and, and, and Demi Moore as well Demi Moore in there who's who's sort of taken over from Meg Ryan as the biggest female star in Hollywood you know by that point yeah. and the, the, the one thing about this is it's a courtroom drama and that's that's not my anywhere near my my favourite genre a lot of people love them um, I think Reiner actually makes a good one here because it's it's not not, it's not a conventional courtroom drama. It's set within the military, which which gives it a, a, a difference immediately. And I think the dynamic of it is slightly different too. And um, uh, so, if you're going to have to see courtroom dramas, which I, I you know, they're, they're not a favourite of mine. This this is one I can sit through. If you're going to see a courtroom drama, see my cousin Vinny. <laughs> then, if you if you once you've watched that, move on to a few good men. I think. Yeah, I think fair I, I think the problem. With, the rules. Yeah. Well, I think I think the problem with um, courtroom dramas for me, because it's not one of my favourite dramas either. Maybe maybe we should do a, a podcast on courtroom dramas mm, just yeah. to exercise that. But it's not one of my favourite dramas because it feels like the whole film's built towards one scene at the end of the movie, and. It, the rest of the movie, you almost just skip that and jump to the end, almost, <laughs> like, and have Tom Cruise and and and, um, and Jack Nicholson shouting at each other because that's what people want to see. That's what that's that's, oh, that's the yeah. thing, you know. So and and the courtroom is generally are the same. You know, they they build that moment where the prosecutor turns the tables and and catches the the, the person out and wins the case. And uh, arguably, this is one of the the best examples of that. 
and uh, yeah, went went down really well, and then lots of uh, critical nominated for four Oscars. Um, another another movie where Tom Cruise failed to win Best Actor, you know, um, should become a career <laughs> a career trait for him. Um, well, yeah, Rob, Rob Reiner picked up his nomination for Best Director on this. Yeah, yeah, um, which comes towards the end of that. I get what we were talking about the golden gold, the golden period. The golden period. It's his only nomination. And working with Aaron Sorkin again, a lot, again, there's a lot of like the people he works with tend to overlap. Uh, in this movie, Kiefer Sutherland rocks up, who was in Stand by Me. You know, even Christopher Guest is in this one as well. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot, of, lots of like about the movie, but yeah, not one of my faves. But you know, yeah, I, a, I, a good, a good star vehicle again, though, and yeah, a sure. good, good use of its star. When when you've got sort of Kevin Bacon like fifth on the bill or whatever he is, you know, and and, and giving a great performance, giving a good star performance, you know, you you know this this is. It, it, it's not quite the American president for me, and it's nowhere near the American president in terms of quality. Quality, but in terms of being a film that could have been made in Hollywood fifty years earlier, it, it's it's there. Reiner's Reiner's almost a director out of time, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as I say, I, I enjoyed it. it. wasn't one of my greats, but then again, I can't handle the truth, kind of their own. Cool. Well, I think that wraps up our look at Rob Reiner. Go out and watch some great Rob Reiner movies because there are. At least eight or nine, <laughs> at least eight or nine, and that's way more than most directors will ever get to say about their own careers. So go and check it out. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode. Oh, I'm sure we'll we'll have a great subject matter. If you've listened to any of this episode today, maybe you'll be able to pull out where we will be going next from our discussion. Possibly courtroom dramas. Who knows? Possibly the work of Jennifer Anderson. Who knows? Who knows? But yes, we will see you in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.